This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Kevin Weinfurt is a professor and vice chair for research in the Department of Population Health Sciences in the Duke University School of Medicine. In his research, he works to understand the way illness, chronic disease, and other issues impact a person's sexual well-being. Today, we talk about how the definition of sex remains confusing and hard to pin down and the ways that this impacts the research around it. We talk about the role that intimacy like hand-holding, eye contact, and simple touching, plays in sexual wellness. And he explains the reason why clinicians who are treating patients with illnesses that affect sexual function aren't talking them through this discomfort, which often leaves them in the dark or to fend for themselves. He and his colleagues are working to fix that. It was impressive how many measures were basically designed for sort of upper economic status, heterosexual married couples. Yeah. And... And the assumptions that were built into all the questions were so loud. And so one of the things that we really tried to do was to take a step back and say, how do we create a measurement system where we can allow people from all different backgrounds and different practices and orientations have their experiences reflected and tracked so that we can understand how their health problems are affecting whatever it is they're doing. Okay, let's get to my chat with Kevin Weinfurt. So obviously, sex is something that we have a particular interest in at Goop. What is sexual health? Not even what's normal, because I think we can clearly establish that there is no normal. But also, sort of, what's appropriate? How is it connected to our health? 
and no one has these conversations, right? And it seems like within your research, it's not even necessarily asked. And certainly when we're sick, it's not, it's discounted. But like how essential or how important is it for our well-being? Well, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking to people with a whole range of different chronic diseases, cardiac problems, arthritis, cancer. And, and you hear so many stories of the ways in which the disease and the treatments for the disease have impacted people's ability to engage in intimate activities. And, you know, for some people, it's not that big of an impact and it doesn't bother them that much. But for other people, it's absolutely devastating. You know, in addition to trying to deal with the disease they've got, they're also trying to deal with some relationship issues that may arise because, you know, they're just not interested anymore or things aren't working the way that they wanted to. And it's hard for people to talk about those things. Yeah. No, I'm I'm not surprised. And I feel like it. the only glimpses of that conversation that we seem to see sort of socially or out there sort of openly in the news or reported on is sort of the side effects of prostate cancer, right? And men not wanting to be both potentially incontinent, but also to have erectile dysfunction. I mean, clearly there's a lot of conversation about that socially. And what does the research say? I mean, are men, is that more, is that fear of impotence more social or is it sort of the way that they see themselves as a man? Is it both? Is the same true for women? And it's just not talked about? The men we've spoken to have come in with a lot of shame about erectile problems. Mm -hmm. And when you do a focus group, as soon as the first person starts to talk about it, everybody's kind of relieved and they all start talking about it. And just having a conversation with you know eight to 10 strangers about this, who are all going through this, is incredibly therapeutic for them, even though this was a research focus group. You know, it's not unusual for people afterward to be exchanging emails and that. And so making a space for people to talk about this is is important. And I think you're, you're right, as you say, the, the prostate cancer issues and erectile function get a lot more attention. But we also heard a great deal of shame and difficulty associated with men for whom they, they don't really have a sexual drive anymore, mm. or men who have trouble reaching an orgasm. One focus group that I ran, it was remarkable that all of the men in the focus group had at one time or another said that they faked orgasm, which is not something you usually think of uh, yeah. guys doing. And while we make lots of jokes about women doing it, and you know it's in sitcoms and that, the fact that they had to do that during lovemaking was a source of incredible shame for them. Interesting. Even though theoretically, for for men in particular, because it's so much easier and less complex, or at least that's the perception, you would think that it would be equally easy for them to be like, I just, bi like something biologically happening has nothing to do with you. Yet it's still, is the shame coming from their, from their fear of, rejecting or disappointing their partner? Or is it coming from their own inability to quote unquote perform? I would say in our research focus groups, the things that we tended to hear were some shame associated with me not being able to do what I'm supposed to be able to do as a man. Mm. And also profound discomfort with what effect this might be having on my partner. What's my partner thinking? Mm. What's, what is gonna happen 
if months are going by and I'm I'm just not into it as I used to, is, is he or yeah. she going to get frustrated and go do something else? These were some things people were expressing to it's us. So interesting. I mean, even that quote, like even that line, as a man, because we have... I think for women, a very like pornographied or linear understanding of women and sex. But the same can certainly be true for men, right? And as a man, like where does that even come from? Like who is, is it porn? Is it like where do men, I mean, again, this is probably going way outside of your, the world of research, but like where does the, where does their construct come from? Hollywood? I- yeah, I think it's a I think it's a great question and I'm and I'm just speculating here, but yeah. I, I would say certainly the the cultural milieu that we're in has a profound effect. What was interesting is, you know, we talked to lots of different groups of men, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and what's impressive is how little difference there is in some of these attitudes. I remember talking to a focus group of all older men. So these were men in their 70s all of whom had some serious chronic conditions, all of whom had indicated that, that, that somehow that was affecting their sex lives. And you got them all together, and there was sort of this surface machismo that, oh, everything's fine, everything's great. You know, and I'd ask, how is, how's your disease affected this aspect of your sex life? And say, oh, it's fine. And then you poke a little bit further, and people would start saying, well, yeah, there's, there's this, and there's that, and there's... And so you'd, you'd hear that people sort of had this presentation that things were good. But then as you delved in, you found out, well, they're actually having some fairly profound difficulties, but that's different from this presentation. So Yeah. And how many of these men were in partnership either with other men or women? And how many of them were single? Because I would imagine that it would probably sure. be far more crippling to be or maybe not. I guess if you have no sexual desire, it's better. It might be easier to just navigate your illness alone. But if you have sexual desire and you can't perform however you think you're supposed to, how does that impact their lives as single men? I know that's yeah, like yeah. five questions in one. Right. But well, most of the people we talked to were partnered. But one thing I would say that we learned from both men and women was that people who are not partnered also feel that their sexual being is a part of them. Mm-hmm. And even though right now they may not be using that in a partnered situation, it was still an important part of them for some people. And it was concerning that that, that part was affected. And how did that manifest? Was that like, I just don't feel pleasure in my body or I don't ever feel aroused or interested? Or what is that, like that sort of, that sexual energy sickness or what does that look like? In the people in our groups who were talking about this, what I recall of the folks who were saying that, you know, having a strong libido was a part of me and it's not there anymore. And it's worrying to me. Yeah. And is that just like, what does that mean to have a strong libido? Is that just responding to sort of the world's visual, whatever you're attracted to, and then feeling your own body respond? Is that, is that what it is? Or is it like they just, is it, or is it, oh, I used to have sex three times a week and now I don't. And that seems, that seems cognitively troubling, but I don't 
I think we heard a range of experiences that people had. You know, for some people, they were expressing dismay that they weren't getting turned on by things. There was just this animating energy that they used mm -hmm. to have that was a part of them that they identified with that it's that's no longer there. Mm -hmm. There were other people who talked about what a healthy sex life they had with their partner, and that was such a normal part of life. And to have this disease rob that from me is is absolutely crushing. Similarly, there were some people who said, the one thing that's still intact is my sex life with my partner. Mm. And that has been an anchor during this disease process. I think this was a, uh, some people with cancer who were talking about this. So it could go either way. It's If it's affected, it has a profound impact on people. If it's not affected for those folks for whom a sexual life is foundational for their life, it's it's really the anchor that might get them through. It has tremendous meaning. Mm, so interesting. And I just am always curious about whether people's experience of their sex life is shaped by sort of what, again, that animating force that you talked about, their own response, or whether it's shaped by cultural and like, how many times should I be having? Like, what's normal? I think where everyone is yeah, consumed yeah. with this question of, what's normal in terms of desire, frequency, style, whatever it is. So it's interesting to think about it in the context of what whatever you anchored yourself to as normal, either not being there or being there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you something that was really interesting about some of our early work with patients who have cancer. And it's just, you know, there, when you try to develop measures of these things, there are always places where you can't do it well. And those are the interesting places to me. You know, measuring erectile function, we can do that pretty well, But, for example. But we heard some people talking about their satisfaction with their sex life. And for many people who had had fairly, fairly serious disease that really affected their bodies, and they were unable to engage in, in genital relationships with uh, others, some of these, especially older people, would talk about what healthy sex lives they have, and they've re they've reconsidered uh, their sex life as holding hands mm -hmm. and cuddling. And, but what was interesting to us is that they wanted they wanted to say that that is their sex life now. They didn't say my sex life is done. Yeah. And now we just hold hands or cuddle. It was important for them to say that it has transformed. Yeah. And so you'd hear people talk about a range of of ways of relating that they consider their sex life and they'd say I'm very satisfied with it. Which is so beautiful and so needed. You know, I had this conversation on this podcast with Peggy Ornstein which was so powerful to me cuz she was talking about sort of how social how we don't even really have a definition of sex. Like what is sex? So are two lesbians not having sex? Does that not count? Like, what's the like? What is it? You know, in our minds, we have a very black and white idea of a man and a woman, and and then you you know, she works a lot within sort of with teens and young adults and on college campuses talking to people about sex, and there are people who are like, well, if it's anal, it's not sex, and it's like, really? But all of these, we, as a culture, we don't really even understand its definition. And so to hear it expanded 
out to include intimacy, you know, which I think is often forgotten for more physical manifestations of sex is really interesting and probably would be a much healthier conversation, particularly for people who might become impaired, right? Like it's not just about having an orgasm. Absolutely. And and I'm not a sex therapist all, but some of my best friends are sex therapists. And I know that, you know, the goal for sex therapy is not to necessarily to restore mechanical functioning that might be broken. Be great if you can. But the goal is to find a way to have meaningful experiences. Yeah. And and, and that may yeah, and that may require some some adaptation and exploration to find out what what can be meaningful in the context of this body that I have now. Right. What's meaningful and what's what is health sort of defining or health driving and that intimacy, that touch, right? Like that has to be I'm sure I I'm sure that there's a lot of science to support that orgasm is really good for people's bodies, maybe even more so for women. But there also I can't imagine that it's not overwhelmed by the evidence that shows that just pure touch alone and intimacy and eye gazing and that that's as healing as really getting your heart rate up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You mentioned something else about we are not sure what counts as sex, and there's a whole diversity of activities and experiences. And, you know, when we began this work over 10 years ago to develop a set of measures that researchers and clinicians could use one of the things that we did was to look at all of the different measures that were out there to measure sexual functioning and satisfaction in men and women. And, and there, were, there were a few good ones, but it was impressive how many measures were basically designed for sort of upper economic status, heterosexual married couples. Yeah. And, and the assumptions that were built into all the questions were so loud. And so one of the things that we really try to do is to take a step back and say, how do we create a measurement system where we can allow people from all different backgrounds and different practices and orientations have their experiences reflected and tracked so that we can understand how their health problems are affecting whatever it is they're doing. And, and it took a lot of work to do that. It's not easy to put together a measure like that, but we're we're gratified that we were able to do that to some extent. Yeah. 
I mean, think about how amazing would it be to have an expanded understanding and to be able to have those conversations with kids, right? And teens. And because it is even that definition of like, it's a mechanical act that could end your life. But to make it an expansive conversation about like who gets to touch you and like really see you and be intimate with you which is so much more sustainable right through all of the phases of our lives through disability through illness through getting old to have that conversation be the backbone around which we can all sort of understand our sex lives because it would be it would I have two small kids and my husband loves it when I talk about this stuff on, but you know, it's like when you have two little kids, you're not, your sex life's not amazing, but our intimacy is, you know, and that's sustaining. And, but yeah, it seems like you, you could almost sort of forego a lot of these conversations about exactly what's physically happening if that doesn't become the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we heard from some people who, talked about how their very intimate and open relationship with their partner that had a lot of communication beforehand was a tremendous resource to them as they moved through a disease that ended up taking away some of their physical abilities. Yeah. And and so they were able to work through that to be talking about what's happening and, and what else can be done because there was that bedrock of intimacy and openness and, and yeah. trust. Some other people told stories that were a little bit different where that wasn't in place before the disease hit. And now not only have you got the disease affecting the parts of your body that you'd usually use to engage in intimate uh, relations, but you didn't you don't have that means of talking with your partner to get through it now yeah. and it's and it really is challenging so trying to trying to build that as you say build that at the front end because you don't know what's going to be coming in the future and having that in place so that this is something that can be talked about yeah within your research groups were there men who had that were they who are who had built that within their relationship we certainly heard stories uh, from men who talked about what a strength their relationship was and and how that foundation of openness and trusting and, and ability to just talk about what's going on with, with your intimate relations was extremely helpful to them. And so what happens with women? Is it because women it's so much less performative for us, right? Like there's no, but I'm assuming there can be an incredible variance in desire and a waning of, I'm sure, a waning of desire and a not wanting to be touched. And I'm just projecting all the ways I would, might feel if I were ill. So what what's the different what's the difference in conversation? Well, obviously the the way the body was affected is different because they're different yeah. bodies. But I w- I would say that the themes were very similar. Maybe they differed in how much of one theme you heard in one group versus another you know and i'm i'm uh, making gross generalizations across our our focus groups here and my research colleagues would be very angry with me for doing that but i would say among the men you'd hear more embarrassment about things not working than among the the women but certainly we heard plenty of absolutely heartbreaking stories told by women about how their disease and the treatments for the disease took a toll on their body and 
and on their sexual lives and their relationships. And was the the toll on their sexual lives, was it sort of in their own ability to experience pleasure or was it feeling like they were no longer sort of fuckable? Like what, what, what was it? A, a whole range of things depending upon the disease. So, you know, for example, you know, certain treatments for cancer are going to make it so that the women can't get lubricated. Mm -hmm. There might be irritation from radiation treatments. There could be fatigue, extreme, you know, incredible fatigue, especially during treatment. There could be, and now this is this was an interesting one for us. After we did version one of our measure, we were talking to our clinical colleagues to say, what else, what are we missing here? What's important about people's experience that we're missing? And a couple people said, you know, you're not asking anything about how the their mouth is mm. impacted by the disease. And so oral discomfort during sexual activity, mm. because there are a lot of cases where people have all sorts of oral discomfort or oral dryness as a result of treatments they're going through. Mm -hmm. They've got head and neck cancer. They have dental problems. You know, the mm -hmm. prevalence of dental issues in this country is huge. And no one ever asked those questions in a sexual functioning measure. And so we wrote some questions. And lo and behold, when we did some national data collection, we found there's quite a lot of people who are saying that they have significant oral discomfort and oral dryness during sexual activity. And depending upon who you are, that can really have a profound effect on your relations. Yeah. I believe I read this in your research, but please correct me if I'm wrong, but this is typically, the other thing that's really interesting about your research is this is this typically doesn't happen. These No one's being asked or talked to about their sex lives when their treatment is being, it's probably, I'm sure, with prostate cancer, obviously it's a sort of a well-known potential side effect, but this isn't, it's not typical conversation to have with your doctor, right? To, who's inquiring, like how much, sexual pleasure are you experiencing and what's happening with your sexual function? Yeah, that is, you know, as part of our work, we spoke with a lot of clinicians to get their perspective. And there are certainly some clinicians who are really passionate about this work and they do talk to their patients. But there are a lot of clinicians who, who are not asking people about these things. And, and we hear a variety of reasons. You know, one is uh, people just say, I don't have time. I've got about seven minutes with this patient and there are higher things on the priority list for me. I've got to, you know, check to make sure the diabetes is under control. And so they just don't have the time. Others say, I don't want to ask about these things because I'm not sure what to do if they're having an issue. Right. And some people are just uncomfortable talking about it. A buddy of mine uh, who's a doc said, as soon as someone mentions sex, my hand is on the doorknob. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things that we're hoping is that by creating these, these standardized sets of questions that could be used, you know, you could give those to people on an iPad in the waiting room, for example. And that might be easier for a clinician then to see where there's a problem and already have some language on the table for talking about this yeah but it's but but the but some of these problems they've cited are real problems if you only have an eight minute appointment time it's tough to get into a sensitive set of issues like this yeah and a lot of doctors don't have the training to know what to do or they think that nothing can be done right which is usually absolutely wrong 
the wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Is there any research around the importance of sort of sex and whether it's partnered or not and and its impact on health? Like, is it is it a stretch to wonder if sex wouldn't be isn't healing or is that just too complex and too hard to measure? The research of which I'm aware is is mostly observational research. And mm-hmm. so you're looking at correlations there, not. Yeah. So it's hard to assign causation. But, you know, certainly from the conversations that my team and I have had with patients, I've I believe that it's a, it can be a very meaningful, significant part of someone's recovery or adaptation to their disease. Do you also work with people's partners in terms of their relationship or, or what's happening on the other side? Or is it only looking at one side of the conversation? That's a, that's a great question. The measures we developed were just for the patient, not the partner. But we absolutely have heard lots about the partners. And you know the, some of the trouble the, the patients are having really arising from problems their partner has. And so that's a very that's a very important area that you know I, I think would be good to do more systematic work in in assessing cuz in in situations with a partner you really do have a dyad you're trying yeah. to work with. Absolutely. Right? And I yeah, I would what typically like in within the conversations in these groups what emerges is that like partner sadness or fear or revulsion or annoyance or like what's what typically seems to be happening uh, i i don't think there was a typical thing we heard i think it was yeah. just all over the board i mean you just think of all the couples you know it's hard to say what's typical of couples right, right. every couple is so different and that's what we heard lots of different stories of some very very moving stories by couples who were rock solid, you know, and we were listening to them. We were like, that is, that's something to aim for, to have a relationship like that. Some people who actually seem to be strengthened through having to, to deal with the, the impact of their disease on their sex lives. And then other people who were really struggling because they, they couldn't communicate very well. There's a lot of, a lot of speculation on the part of some people about what their partner must really think about me concern about not being attractive you know body image was a big issue especially for for people who have surgical alterations to their body so just the whole gamut i think in any probably any relationship whether impacted by health or disease or age or disability you know, at the at the core, it's like you have you have to create this a trust or like I guess a foundational belief or love that like the attraction, which I'm, is hard, would, that the attraction can't be adulterated by outside factors, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that attraction or desire 
which of course is impacted by hormones and age and all of these other things, but that somehow like the person remains deeply lovable. And maybe it's, maybe that can only, that can best be expressed through intimacy and not bump and uglies. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> again, I think it, it comes down to like, what, what are the measures and what, what qualifies as, and how can we enjoy where we are and not always be wondering if we're like doing enough? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, while we think it's it's very important to measure these these impacts of the disease on the person's sexual functioning and satisfaction, and that should be done. You know, you're you're raising something uh, a risk in doing that. That that we're we're establishing sort of metrics. You know, we're a, a society now that likes to keep score with everything, and so we need to be careful that the metrics that we're making available aren't interpreted as the only metrics. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are really profoundly important aspects of people's intimate lives that we heard about that we cannot translate into a standardized questionnaire. Yeah. And and it's always humbling to go and, and hear people's stories and be reminded of that. We did the best we could. We've got important things that we're assessing, but those aren't the only things. And so, and so in addition to measuring these easier to measure things, it really requires conversations with people to also assess these more subtle, richer aspects of their experience. Yeah, like do you ask like, how frequently people like touch their partners or are touched by their partners in an intimate, potentially non-sexual way, or like hugs or kisses. Yeah, yeah, we have we've got questions about the frequency of the of those behaviors as well. Yeah, yeah. Because so I would imagine that would correlate. I w- interviewed a long time at the beginning of the podcast Stephen Snyder, who is the couples therapist who focuses on sex, but his point is that as a culture, we're far too focused on, again, the sexual act, but that you sort of fill your bank account by coming up behind your partner while they're washing dishes or, and you, you sure. know, you hug them from behind and you give them a kiss and there's no need for it to go any farther. Yeah. But that, that, that bit or that, that touch alone is so, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I think everyone's also had that experience of sort of like soulless, unanimated mechanical sex, right? Mm-hmm. So again, it's like, how do you even, how do you decide what's meaningful, right? Yeah, and yeah. That seems, I guess, to be the work yeah. that you're after. There was, this is reminding me of a funny story about someone who participated in one of our studies. This was a study to try to figure out what's the best recall period for the measure. So mm. when you're going to ask people questions, you know, do I do I ask you how things been in the past seven days or the past two weeks or the past month? What's the right recall period to use in our questions? And it really gets to how well can people remember what happened? Right? Yeah. And so a lot of the patients said, you know, if you want to know what's going on with me, you should ask about the past month. But it's another question about whether they can actually recall what happened to them over the past month. And so we did a study where we had men and women do a daily diary electronically every day. And it would ask if they had any sexual activity. If they said yes, then then they had a number of questions asking them about how things functioned and felt. Right. And they did that for 30 days. And at the end of the study, we give them a, 
a version of our measure that asks them to think back over the last 30 days and rate how things were. And then we look at how they matched up. And at the end of that study, there was an opportunity for people to just sort of write any thoughts or reflections they had. And one gentleman very eloquently described how he started this month-long study with a sense that he, he really had a wonderful sex life. He, he really enjoyed it. It was a big part of him. But these daily questions about the quality of his erections and things said really changed by the end of the month. He, he was aware that he was starting to think of himself as this plumbing system, you know, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a very interesting point. And it was a good lesson to us that, you know, you, you have to be careful about what you're asking and when you're asking, because those are signaling to people what might be judged as most important. Right. And so that's why I say it's it's great to be measuring these things and to know that we also need to be talking, having those conversations about these these other aspects of, of a meaningful, intimate life. Yeah. No, and it also just brings up the whole question of context, right, and, and timing and the way that we survey our lives and allowing for, you know, the ups and downs too, right? And that that doesn't necessarily... It's like when you have a baby and the most helpful, persistent advice is like, everything's a phase. And because you're like, I can't live like this anymore. <laughs> and then suddenly it's tra- your child transforms overnight. And it must be true of people's relationships too, right? And so, like when you, sure. if you look at any snapshot in time, it like has to be weighed against the larger story. And then we all have to obviously give ourselves permission within our relationships to know that desire will ebb and flow and illness will happen, whether chronic or short term and at various ages and that it can't, those chapters can't be the whole story. Right. They're just seasons. Just seasons. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kevin Weinfurt. You can find out more about his work at populationhealth.duke.edu. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>